Please turn to Exodus 25. Exodus 25, I'll be reading, starting at verse 10. This is God speaking to Moses in the cloud at the top of Mount Sinai. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, Inside and outside you shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark, They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make, excuse me, two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two sides, two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Let us pray. Our Father, we do pray that we might come to understand now with full assurance all the riches and all um, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are found in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that as we consider this text this afternoon, we might see Christ here. We pray this in his name. Amen. I'm sure many of you have seen um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, I just want to say that that is an inaccurate uh, portrayal of the Ark of the Covenant and, you know, all that, the swirling spiritual stuff going on. That is not, not what we have going on here. 
um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, but uh, anyways, we will take a, a look at the real Ark of the Covenant uh, this afternoon and see all the wonderful blessings that are, are, are found here in this passage that, you know, it's, it's a very interesting passage. Uh, it's, it's, it's very remarkable. There are a lot of details that maybe are... I mean, when you're going through these passages, it is hard sometimes to pick up on what's going on and the, the real value of, of it all, but, but it is here. Uh, the theme for the sermon this afternoon is Yahweh instructs Moses how to construct his royal footstool, the place of his holy presence on earth, where he will meet with his people. There's another Pastor Beset mouthful sermon theme for you. Uh, it's hard to... Hard to include it all, but that's uh, trying to get at uh, a number of different elements going on here. So first we'll look at the chest of the testimony, then the cover for atonement, and finally the meeting place of Yahweh's presence. So first, the chest of the testimony, we see that in verses 10 through 16. Now when we get past the instructions to the account of the construction of the ark, remember these are just the plans for building it. Okay, later on, there's going to be a, a description that is similar of the actual construction of it when it is built. Um, it's interesting that that account of the construction of the ark occurs in Exodus 37 after that of the tabernacle itself being constructed in Exodus 36. But here, the ark is mentioned first. Why? Well, the order is not describing the order of construction at this point, uh, but rather the order of significance. The ark is the central concern of the tabernacle. If you want to understand the tabernacle, you have to understand the ark. The ark is the only furniture placed in the Holy of Holies, the central uh, most holy place room of the tabernacle. Of course, the tabernacle only had two rooms, but this was the most holy room. The instructions, then, uh, appear to be given from the perspective of Yahweh himself, at least when it comes to the primary furniture of the tabernacle. What would be seen if one were in God's very presence and then walked eastward, out towards the courtyard. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. it just so happens, you know, in terms of translation history and, and all that kind of stuff, that sometimes there are words in the Bible that we, that we see in our translations that there are much simpler translations that could be offered, but for following tradition's sake in terms of translation, sometimes they, they stick with these older words, um, and one of those words is the word here, ark. You know, when you think of an ark, what do you think of? Well, you think of something in the Bible. Several different things in the Bible called an ark. Uh, it's not really the kind of word that we would normally use. Um, the English word ark comes from the Latin arca, 
meaning chest or box. So um, that's what the Hebrew word means as well. There is no connection here to Noah's ark or the ark that Moses was placed in as a child as the Hebrew terms are different. Um, Maybe, I guess a case could be made in some other way, but I don't think so. Um, It's a different thing here. So ark just means chest or box. A cubit was the length of your forearm from your your elbow to your fingertips, uh, roughly 18 inches, but of course people's arms were different lengths, so um, the chest then would be about three feet, nine inches long, two feet, three inches wide, and two feet, three inches high. Of course, that's just an estimate, but that goes to show you this is not a very large box or chest. The ark is to be covered in pure gold, inside and outside, the chest, and it is to have a gold molding or border around it, although the meaning of this Hebrew term is uncertain, so perhaps it refers to a ring or a band around the chest. Not really sure on that. The details of the ark have some parallels to Egyptian religion. Um, The Egyptians made palanquins for their gods. uh, I don't know how to pronounce all these words, but is it a leader? So the thing where you carry, say, a king or an emperor or a pharaoh is going to be carried... You know, they didn't have cars. So the fanciest way to move around was to have your slaves uh, pick you up on what essentially is a uh, floating couch or bed, and you just sit on it, and maybe it'd be covered from the sun, and you'd be carried around. Well, that's called a palanquin. Um, And they would make these for their gods, also chests in which they would place the idol of the god within the box and then carry it around in a reverent way. Um, In the case of the ark or chest of God, of the true God, um, there is an obvious and significant difference. There's no idol in it. There's no physical representation of God anywhere in the tabernacle. Not even here. The the ark does not represent God. It's it's not like a picture that that, uh, is intended to convey um, what he looks like or anything like that. Um, it's not a problem that design elements of the tabernacle and its furnishings mimic designs from Egyptian culture, if you think about it. The Israelites were likely trained in Egyptian artistry as they worked as slaves. Uh, for example, in terms of some of the uh, design I mean, just their craft, right? That's what I'm saying, their craft. They knew how to make the linen fabrics of Egypt, for example. God intended to convey to the Israelites something important and different about himself in comparison with the Egyptian gods. So no physical representation of Yahweh is ever uh, permissible, just as is conveyed in the second commandment. Verses 12 through 15 describe four gold rings that are to be attached to the four feet of the ark and two acacia wood poles overlaid with gold that are to be permanently attached to those rings. 
Poles are for transporting the ark. Since the rings were attached to its feet when lifted up upon the shoulders of the priests carrying it, it would be higher and more visible uh, as it leads the people of Israel. When being carried, the ark is to be covered. We read this in Numbers chapter 4. When the camp is to set out, Aaron and his sons shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then they shall put on it a covering of goatskin and spread on top of that a cloth all of blue. So all you see is, is you know, priests carrying this small box, well, with however big the cherubim were, right, protruding out. Um, and then you just see blue, a blue uh, um, uh, fabric on top of there. The poles aren't to be removed from the ark. Any idea why that is? That's because you may never touch the ark. The ark is to be covered because it is also not to be seen. So anytime when you read in, the, in Scripture that you know, Israel was following the ark or they took the ark around the, um, the walls of Jericho however many times, um, the ark is always covered. It's always covered. In 2 Samuel 6, the ark was being carried on a cart, but when one of, and that's not how it was supposed to be carried, but when one of the pulling oxen stumbled, Uzzah reached out to stabilize the ark so it wouldn't fall. Sounds like a good thing to do. Nope. He was struck dead. No, you don't touch it. Similarly, after the Philistines returned the ark, after capturing it, many of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, and there's a textual question there on exactly how many people died, it was a lot, were struck down because they looked upon the ark of Yahweh. So presumably, you know, when the, the Israelites brought it into battle with the Philistines, and the Philistines won, they took the ark, and they're like, what's under here? And they uncovered it. People died. They started getting tumors, right? They send it back to Israel, and now it's uncovered. And so the people see it, and they, they're killed. You're not allowed to look at it. Now, why is that? Well, the ark is holy. The ark is holy. It is, it is the holiest thing on earth. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. The testimony refers to the two tablets of the testimony. Uh, so I'm quoting now from uh, Exodus 31:18. The two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God, or the two tablets on which were written, Exodus 34, 28, the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. I told you the Ten Commandments would make an appearance. They're placed in the ark. This is why it is called the ark of the testimony or the ark of the covenant of Yahweh. That was customary for copies of covenant treaties to be placed in, the, in sanctuaries in the ancient Near East. So if a treaty was made between two groups, there would be two copies of the treaty. Uh, each one would be placed in the temple of the god of each respective group. In this way, the gods would act as witnesses against, you want to break the treaty, that's fine. But you know, your god sees the treaty, it's right there before him, and you're going to get in trouble 
with your God if you break the terms of this covenant, is the idea with that. Um, In Israel's case, the covenant was made with Yahweh. It is possible, then, that each tablet had the full Ten Commandments on them, but the text doesn't say this uh, explicitly. The chest that Israel is to make is the chest of the testimony. It is the chest of the um, covenant such that Yahweh's holy and righteous law is given pride of place. God, what, what do you think might be a, an application from this? It's that God wants his people to live in accordance with his holy commands. Second, the cover for atonement, verses 17 through 21. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. Mercy seat was the way Martin Luther translated this verse, which was picked up and brought into English by William Tyndale. The word seat in that translation uh, doesn't refer to a chair in this context. Uh, it's, it's the older meaning of the word seat, I guess you could say, an older meaning, uh, but it refers to the location where mercy is found. Strictly speaking, the Hebrew uh, speaks neither of mercy nor of a seat or chair here. So, again, this is another place where, like the word ark, it's just translation history, translation tradition, to say mercy seat. Unfortunately, that's not what either of the words, that's not what the word means. Um, The Hebrew word uh, translated mercy is derived from the Hebrew word that means to make atonement. So the word literally refers to an instrument of atonement. A most accurate way to translate, then, would be atonement lid, or as the NIV NIV has it right here, atonement cover. This is a lid or cover that is placed um, on top of the chest. So uh, it's really simple, Um, which is why its dimensions match exactly that of the chest, and it is to be made of pure gold. There's no acacia wood involved in in the uh, cover. Verses 18 through 20 detail the construction of two cherubim of gold. Each cherub will be at one end of the atonement cover. Their wings will spread out above, overshadowing the cover. They are to face one another, Uh, It appears also looking down towards the gold cover. Perhaps uh, their eyes were looking down in a posture of bowing down before God or of worship or of shielding their gaze from their Yahweh's glory. Now, um, contrary to popular art, angels don't have wings but the cherubim do. Also, banish from your mind any image of chubby infants. And diapers, sure. 
the cherubim are fierce and frightful creatures. Sometimes they're described as a combination of human and with a, a combination of human and animal elements. Cherubim and seraphim refer to the same um, spiritual beings. They're just different terms coming from different. One's Mesopotamian, one is Egyptian. Um, so we see the, uh, the seraphim in Isaiah chapter six. You can see a, a picture of them there. The word seraphim is derived from the Hebrew word for snake. Um, incidentally, this might suggest that this is this is a free one. This might suggest that Satan was a cherubim or seraphim. I mean, a cherub or seraph um, prior to his fall. Someone who had, as as we'll see, uh, close access to God. These are heavenly beings, but not angels in the sense of being messengers. The cherubim serve a different function. So what, what is the function that the cherubim serve? Cherubim were the customary guardians of holy places in the ancient Near East. Their function was to serve as throne guardians. You know, if you're a king and you've got all the wealth in the world, you're going to have the best bodyguards <laughs> that you can find. They're going to be around you. They're going to look, you know, when someone comes into your presence to deliver a message or something, your, your best men are going to be there protecting you, and no one's going to try anything, right? Similar idea. These are throne guardians. But they're intended to protect the presence of, God, the, the presence of gods. They are a blessing to those who welcome them, who, who are welcomed into sacred space, and a terror for those who aren't allowed to be there. I mean, you, you don't just go into the king's presence without being invited. You don't just go into God's presence without being invited. Now, when we see similarities between God's revelation to Israel and the surrounding cultures, there are several explanations for this. This matter of other cultures also having cherubim likely suggests some distant and remnant memory of the truth of the Most High God's holy presence. You know, um, just as the nations got further and further and further away from God, yet there still remains some distant memory of, say, uh, the configuration of Yahweh's throne room. Perhaps also the gods of the nations themselves simply copied the Most High's idea of having protectors for their presence. I think both of those are, are possible ideas for why, why there are similarities. Um, you know, the other gods are like, well, I want to be like the Most High God, so we'll, you serve as this role in my little court here. Um, there is a primeval origin that goes to the very beginning of human history for this, though. The word for cherubim occurs frequently all over the place in the construction of the tabernacle here in Exodus in these chapters. Um, this is because cherubim are 
to be woven into the linen sheets that formed the inner layer to the tent. So if you were to go into the tent, you looked around, you would see the images of cherubim all around. They'll also be woven into the screen that will separate the most holy place from the holy place. So you're going to go through the veil, through the curtain. You literally have to go through the cherubim. All this is significant. There are only two other places in the Pentateuch, besides these chapters in in Exodus, right, that we just talked about, uh, where cherubim are mentioned. And one of these is most significant. You probably already know this, but in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, Adam sinned, spoke the curse, and then we read there, he drove out the man, And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And it's not just guarding from uh, the tree of life. It includes that. That was one significant consequence that Adam and Eve had to deal with as a result of the fall. But more significant, they were driven out from the presence of God. They were forbidden, forbidden from entering back into God's presence. If you come back in, you have to pass through the cherubim. They won't let you pass. For the first time since the fall, man will once again have Adam-like entrance into God's holy presence. This is nothing less than the restoration of Eden. You see, ever since the fall, there's been a problem. How does man, you know, Genesis 3, you read those chapters, and that's the big problem that sets up the, the, uh, the issue. Well, how is this problem ever going to be solved? Right here, the problem is solved. It begins to be solved. Um, man will make it beyond the cherubim into God's presence. Verse 21, And you shall put the mercy seat, the atonement cover, on the top of the ark or chest, and in the chest you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. The tabernacle shows us what it takes to approach God. What it takes to approach God what he requires, the way he has opened. I think the tabernacle has, so we'll see, the tabernacle has many layers of meaning. And as we go through the, um, the plans for its construction, we're going to be primarily focused on just what its physical construction intends to convey, that meaning of which there is much, much meaning there. But here we're going we're gonna, to, jump to something that is not in this passage. Um, well, I mean, it, it's here in, this, in the, just in the term atonement cover. Um, because what, what Exodus is about is about the description of God's dwelling place. And what Leviticus is about is describing the way into God's presence. I don't know that you want me to be preaching through Leviticus. At least... We're not going to do that next. It would be nice, but 
Um, so the way into God's presence is what we're talking about now. That is described in the first half of the book of Leviticus. But we're going to touch on the most significant chapter, the chapter that is the very center of the whole Pentateuch, that of Leviticus chapter 16, which describes the Day of Atonement. That is the one time this atonement cover is used. First, the high priest would make an off- a sin offering for himself with a bowl. Then he would sacrifice... A- I'm giving you the, the Cliff Notes version. Then he would sacrifice a goat and go into the veil of the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the goat's blood as a sin offering onto the atonement lid. And by this act, the sin of the nation was atoned for. So Leviticus 16.16 says, Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place. There's a lot going on here. The tabernacle itself has to be cleansed. Um, For the holy place, because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel, and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them, in the midst of their uncleanness. So, remember that the tabernacle serves as something. God is holy, right? He is most holy. We can't even comprehend how holy he is. The cherubim are a bit of a picture of that. And, you know, go read in some of these other, like, prophetic passages just to see how frightening they really are. God's people need to be insulated from God. That's what the tabernacle is. It acts as insulation, as protection. Both protecting God's people from, say, even seeing God because they would die. But also, it's a protection of God's holiness from the uncleanness of Israel. Because if that uncleanness is permitted, if their sin just festers and grows and isn't dealt with in some way, then God has to destroy them. See? So the chest contains the written copies of the covenant obligations. It includes the Ten Commandments. Notice how the atoning blood is placed on the lid and over the tablets of the testimony. Every year, the high priest will make atonement for Israel's failure, their moral uncleanness, their transgression, their sin, their guilt. They had broken the commandments and the covenant of their sovereign king. That's built into the system, you could say, is that they are going to sin. His holy presence cannot continue among them unless this is dealt with. God was above the ark in his holiness, and below was the law that spoke against Israel, What came between was the substitutionary, atoning blood. The ark is a tool that reveals how God intends to provide a way back into his presence through atonement by appeasing his wrath and justice and thus creating peace and reconciliation. 
Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why? Because someone has to die. Someone has to bear that guilt, that wrath. Now, all of this, of course, foreshadows the blood of Jesus Christ, whom, as Paul wrote, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That's Romans 3.25. And we read this in Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. That's why this was an annual rite had to be done every year. It was a picture that the blood of goats, bulls, doesn't really work. That pointed forward to the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You could say the cross is our true atonement cover upon which God's blood of Jesus was spilt and sprinkled for our salvation. Third, the meeting place of Yahweh's presence, verse 22. God is repeatedly spoken of as sitting or dwelling between the cherubim. Um, you know, when, you're, when you, we sang this in one of the Psalms tonight, this afternoon, uh, when you read it in the Psalms, you're reading the prophets, or, what are they referring to? Are they referring to God, God's presence above the Ark of the Covenant? Or are they referring to his actual holy throne room in which there are the real uh, cherubim? You know, we don't know. (laughs) But there are lots of times in in, in the scriptures uh, where God is spoken of as sitting or dwelling between or among or over the cherubim. And it is here where God's glory and presence will transition. Now we're talking about the chest in the tabernacle from Mount Sinai in Exodus 40. So in in Exodus 40, verses 34 through 38, when the whole tabernacle is done, that glory, cloud, spirit, fire will move from Mount Sinai and come down and dwell upon the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. It is sometimes understood that the Ark is God's throne, but it is more appropriately understood as his footstool. I can give you several references for this. Um, Footstools were a regular feature of ancient Near Eastern thrones. Consider the footstool of King Solomon's throne. This is 2 Chronicles Chapter 9, 17 through 19. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with pure gold. The throne had six steps and a footstool of gold, which were attached to the throne. And on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrests. Perhaps sort of a 
non-divine form of of cherubim or something. While 12 lions stood there, one on each end of a step, on on the six steps, nothing like it was ever made for any kingdom. So the ark is the footstool of Yahweh's throne. So it is natural that this is the very place where his people may meet with him. When you go and visit a king, you come up, you bow down before what? Before their footstool. Bow down before their footstool. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So the tabernacle will not only serve as the dwelling place of God, but as a tent of meeting. And throughout the, the, the construction narrative, um, there's, there's two primary terms used for this. It's either the tabernacle or dwelling place, and then the tent of meeting. So now we're highlighting the tent of meeting aspect um, uh, of the tabernacle. This is where God will speak with Moses and his people. The first time this will happen is the very first verse in the first verse of the book of Leviticus, where after the tabernacle was fully constructed and God's glorious presence went over and came to dwell over the tabernacle, well, now what? You know, they didn't have the sacrificial system. They didn't know how to go in to meet with God. And then we read there that God spoke from the tabernacle to Moses. So now no longer is he speaking from Mount Sinai, but now he is speaking from the tent of meeting. The Holy of Holies will serve as an extension of Yahweh's heavenly throne room. The feet of the Most High and King of all the earth symbolically touch the earth. At this point, in this most holy place, it's as if heaven and earth are made one just in this one small room where God's footstool dwells on earth. Now, brothers and sisters, this most remarkable access to God's blessed and holy presence is so much more abundantly available to us today. Hebrews 10, 19, and 20 say, We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Jesus Christ has opened for us. Indeed, he himself is for us the meeting place of God's presence. So we see in this, in this passage with the ark, we begin to have a bit of a feeling of just how remarkably holy God is. No one goes into his presence lightly. No one. And actually, there was only one person who was allowed into his presence with any regularity. That was the high priest, but once a year, and that only after all sorts of Blood was shed. You see, do not take, do not take the blessing, the privilege that you have as a Christian lightly. 
through Christ, you may go into God's presence. We are, God is with us here right now. His good presence, his kind, his loving presence, his holy presence, his righteous presence is here with us now, dwells within us. This is what it means to be a Christian. We have access to God, and so we praise him, that he loves us, that through Christ he shed his blood for us, and he saved us from all our sin, and um, while this was a, a, a small miniature picture of Eden on earth, all those years ago for the nation of Israel, and only the high priest could enjoy it, we will enjoy it in fullness in the new heavens and new earth. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we do pray that we not take your presence lightly, but recognize with what grandeur and might and awesome power is your presence in our midst. Indeed, your spirit dwells within us. We thank you that we may enter your presence without fear, with no need to shed any blood of of goats or bulls. We thank you that our own blood need not be shed, for we have a faithful Savior and great high priest, Jesus, who has passed into the heavens, passed through the curtain, into your presence as our representative, and as he is received, so we are received, and so we thank you. Amen.